But that may be only half of the story. If they can actually understand rationality, but they're not using it for some other reasons, then you would have a very different path to make people rational, potentially, if you want in the first place. Welcome to the Own Wisdom Podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Grossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. You've been great so far. We are in a new year, in a new decade right now. And we start off with a new episode. Very exciting. The episode is a special episode because uh, this time we don't have a guest. Uh, Charles and I thought we'll take a little break and just uh, reassess the situation in the world and specifically how potentially rational and uh, reasonable the world uh, may be these days. It's uh, kind of hard to believe that it may be one or another, but we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Mm -hmm. So this is, yes, yeah, so the kind of theme of today's episode is around sound judgment, uh, which is, it turns out, we we, people might have quite distinct ideas of what sound judgment is, and it might have changed over history and different kind of sectors of society might think of it in different ways. So that's what we're going to get into. And it's obviously massively relevant to wisdom, because often wisdom and judgment are sort of considered very close kind of bedfellows. Igor, before we get into this, do you know anyone personally, maybe even someone that listens to the podcast, you know, so be careful what you say, but someone who you would say, yeah, they tend to make sound judgments. Anyone from your life who does that? Oh, well, it all depends on uh, how we define sound judgment, right, Charles? Ah, so, I guess I get right away. Put, put it on, back just, to you. Just roll with it. That is a good. Well, thank you very much. Uh, but you know, if, uh, do we know sort of hyper rational people who are like uh, uh, Spock from Star Trek? I probably do know a few. I would not name them uh, because often that's not a positive attribute uh -huh. to be like Spock. Uh, you <laughs> know, right. like emotions are somewhere hidden, and you're like hyper, like like a computer. But what about wise people? Mm -hmm. I I can name a few. I think like uh, Phoebe Ellsworth from uh, my uh, old days in Michigan is definitely one of the people who, whose opinion myself and many others, including Bill McGuire, who used to be a famous psychologist, um, uh, share and think that she's very wise. Mm -hmm. um, but there are also many, many others. I mean, like it, it's all context dependent. Right. So some, yeah. What about you? Yeah. Um, yeah well, th I thank you. You're suggesting me as a candidate. Yeah, I would say that's that's probably about right. I'm incredibly wise. Yeah. Thanks for suggesting me. <laughs> oh, you were asking me the who I Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. I mm, I kind of tend to think of my father as. I mean, he's no longer with us, but I tend to think of him as quite wise. I don't know if that's. Mm -hmm. I know you might know from research, but when people are asked to nominate uh, someone they think of as wise, I wonder if parents come up uh, disproportionately. Like, but it's probably a lot to do with the dynamic of the sort of parent child relationship but oh I, yeah I was, that yeah. was just the first thing i was thinking about right like yeah. so if you have a good relationship with your dad or bob then you're like oh absolutely yeah maybe if you're longing after them and if you don't that, that probably would be the last thing on your mind yeah true it's, it's an interesting question i don't think it has been explored yeah. enough uh, but it's certainly <laughs> subject to various human biases yeah, I'm, I'm probably subject for a different episode. So the reason we decided to put uh, an episode aside today to specifically get into this topic of sound judgment is that Eagle, with some colleagues, has just published a paper which has this title. It is Folk Standards of Sound Judgment, Rationality versus Reasonableness. Now, Eagle sent me this paper about a week ago, and Eagle produces a lot of papers. You're a busy man, Eagle. And this paper, when I read the title, I, it, it didn't grab me as 
as significant as it turns out to be. So like I read the title, I thought, yeah, it sounds quite interesting. And then when, when I started reading it, I was like, this is quite, it's quite a big deal. The claims and the, the ideas that you're putting forward in this. And I think it might cause a little bit of a stir. Uh, are, are you aware of that, Igor? Do you have that sense or do you just like churn out papers and you don't think about like how it might be received? I mean, the academics, we, we have this huge bias where we think that our work is uh, so beautiful and magnificent. Right. I obviously have that, especially if you spend quite a bit of time on a project. Uh, it's very hard to separate yourself from it. It's problematic, of course. And in this case, that's definitely the case. I, like, I, I put a lot of uh, thinking into it. So I was like, well, hopefully people will like it. And I, I think it's important. But whether people actually perceive it as such, we don't know. Sure. Um, so that's just one thing. But uh, the, the question, um, so to answer your question, whether it's an important topic, one would hope so. I mean, the, how we make decisions and what does it mean to make a good decision, sound decision, how to judge uh, a certain situation. And that's certainly something that is very essential for our existence. So in that sense, if there is a distinction between different ways to do this, yeah, um, then it becomes a big deal. And uh, that certainly has been a thread in philosophy over the course of the last uh, several thousand years. Right. So, yeah, I, I think rather than continuing in an enigmatic, mysterious way, we need to actually let people know what we're talking about. So, um, okay, let's do it. Yeah. So looking at the history, so... Um, there's this idea of sound judgment and what that means has perhaps evolved over perhaps a couple of thousand years. So let's just briefly go back to sort of what we say, beginning of Western civilization, perhaps the Greeks. Um, tell us um, what, what did sound judgment mean back then and how did it sort of change over towards the Enlightenment? And then maybe you can even tell us the end of the journey up into the 20th century. So how has the meaning of sound judgment changed over that time? Oh, I mean, I hope that uh, no philo serious philosophers are listening now because this is something that they will kill me uh, <laughs> or try to crucify me. It's, it's a, a topic of debate. I mean, the generalizing is very, very hard here uh, because uh, different types, and this is just a preamble, different types of history, uh, you had very different interpretations. And obviously, when you talk about uh, such intellectual giants as uh, Plato, Aristotle, but also, like, you know, like uh, the people during the Enlightenment period, and they are much richer than just some kind of caricature sure. um, idea about what they would be. Uh, but nevertheless, <clears throat> there are certain tendencies. Yeah. And these tendencies may be even present in the same person, depends on the time. But mm. uh, let's go with uh, some certain tendencies. So the, the tendencies may be best summarized what Asaya uh, Berlin, a famous, uh, well, he was pretty much everything like he was mostly historian but also wrote about uh, a range of different topics it was a 20th century intellectual giant okay so Berlin once sort of like uh, wrote this a little piece about the hedgehogs and the foxes so the hedgehogs are like um they 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 focus on a single abstract idea so uh, he said well throughout history you have this uh, People like uh, Plato, Dostoevsky, uh, Prost, and they see the world through the lens of this abstract idea. Mm -hmm. And then you have these foxes, and the foxes, they don't know a single thing, but they, they're many, uh, there are many things that they would uh, talk about, like, um, for instance, Aristotle, Joyce, Shakespeare. So for them, it's all kind of context-dependent, depends on the circumstances, ah, okay. variety of experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's not like one single idea. It's like when you think about Shakespeare, you wouldn't think like, oh, Shakespeare's talking about X. Right, right, And right. everything has to be summed up under X. Okay. And uh, so 
There's this difference, and it depends on the situation. We also can switch between this kind of more abstract idea of what should be guiding us with abstract rule, or this kind of more particular, depends on the situation, mm-hmm. I will do this or that. Mm-hmm. And even though it's hard and dangerous potentially to generalize, you would see these tendencies in many thinkers throughout history. And I think what we can also say is that we can see these tendencies in us too. And to some extent, what this work was trying to shows that we understand that there are these two different ways to think about how to make a good decision. One would be focus on this abstract idea and the other one be a sort of be more particular. I am. Um, this uh, rings a bell. Um, super forecasting. Tet- Philip Tetlock, doesn't he also use the fox and hedgehog idea? Um, That's right. That's where uh, Phil adapted this. Uh, he uh-huh. borrowed it from Isaiah Berlin. Can we just, for the listeners, can we just sort of say how, what a sort of snappy definition of rationality is and a snappy definition of reasonableness? Because we're going to be using these terms quite a lot over the next sort of 20 minutes. So right. what is that? What, when we talk about a rational agent versus a reasonable person, what's the basic, simple way of thinking about that in distinction? Probably the best one would be coming from economics and legal studies, so there, where these two concepts uh, feel most comfortable in. So in economics, you have the idea of a rational agent, uh, somebody who is maximizing their preferences and follows uh, the abstract rule of utility maximization. So you're consistent, you're following the rules of formal logic, but first and foremost, you're focusing on maximizing your uh, preferences, your utility, whatever you will, would like okay. in a given moment. Okay. <clears throat> and a reasonable person is a term that comes often, uh, appears often in the uh, crime law and the tort law in uh, legal studies. And that's the standard uh, against which you would evaluate somebody's actions in court. So it's a reasonable person is this uh, a nondescript uh, person who knows what the rules of the society are, uh, but would act in accordance to the features of the situation. So it's like reasonable in a given situation. Is it reasonable to help somebody? Is it reasonable Mm -hmm. to do X versus Y? Is it reasonable to do the thing that law prescribes as the legal thing to do? Or is it reasonable to violate that uh, abstract legal standard because there is a grave danger to you? Okay, I I heard about this idea of um, the man on the Clapham omnibus. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. probably for you, it's very. Uh, I mean, is there still a, a Clapham omnibus? Well, probably there's, there's not. There's an omnibus. But. Well, there's bus. A lot of. I, I was on a a, a bus uh, in Clapham the other day. I saw a lot of very unreasonable people. I mean, I would not use uh, that. The, the, <laughs> on a on, on Clapham omnibus. Yeah, yeah man. Right. I mean, like that's the legal scholars. They really got it wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, maybe there was one who, or maybe it was a she, uh, <laughs> who was actually quite reasonable. <laughs> I mean, so the idea there is sort of uh, the legal uh, scholars is like well. Okay, so we can, how do we evaluate uh, decisions in court? We'll f- picture somebody who is on this most mundane route in London, on a bus that goes from one part of town to another. That's uh-huh. like Clapham Omnibus. Yeah. And it would be this kind of impartial uh, observer uh, who would be observing the situation and intervening when it's reasonable to do so. So that's why it's a reasonable person. Okay. Uh, and uh, there the focus is really it's like you really have to pay attention to the situation you have to yeah, pay attention yeah. to the civic no- civic norms yeah. and act accordingly and so it's very different from the idea of some kind of general abstract rule uh-huh. because uh, here it's not about the general abstract rule it's really about the situation at hand 
Interesting. So now that we've got that, that makes sense to me. By the way, the rational and reasonable have the same uh, uh, Latin root. Uh-huh. Uh, so they, they literally derived from the same term. But one is, has this kind of more Latin flavor, the rational, the other one is, uh, was translated first and then applied. So the reasonable. Uh, okay. And so ratio and reason is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why is the distinction? It was like rationality sort of emerged in the Enlightenment period as a, as a sort of the paradigmatic way to think, to, to be less subject to bias, to be more accurate, to be guided by reason. Mm. So there, at the beginning, it was very much the same thing. Okay. Uh, but then it started to evolve in somewhat different directions. What does it mean to be guided by reason? Uh, some philosophers talked about uh, being uh, guided by the principles of one single idea. And then we return here to this notion of a one single abstract idea, namely formal logic, mm. sort of abstract principles, and that you should be logical in your thinking. You should build your arguments on your premises, and uh, it, it should logically follow. Well, there's others talked about another very important aspect of all this, namely the social implications. And so how do you live in the society? Uh, how do you make decisions with other people around you, uh, considering other people's interests? And there, I think to some extent, it was not as much about logic as it was about this kind of civic and moral characteristics. Mm. And philosophers like Immanuel Kant, but also many others, uh, focused more on those to some extent, more on this kind of reasonable, pragmatic considerations. Uh, Rousseau did the same thing um, right. than others who focus on this kind of abstract idea. Right. One thing that emerged during the Enlightenment period is this notion of economic rationality, which is very different uh, from how until that point, when people talked about sort of like reasonable arguments to justify their positions, uh, was salient. So like uh, Adam Smith uh, talked not only about how you should think, uh, what would be a good way to think, but also what would be a good thing to do both for you and for the society, Mm -hmm. building up the whole system of arguments about decisions. And that one is very, very different. And unfortunately, that's the one that's, to some extent, is dominating these days. Right. So that's kind of the next step. If we come to the 20th century, sort of close to the modern times, you've got these sort of two now quite clearly delineated sort of standards. Uh, And it seems, if I understand it correctly, that the sort of rational approach, like thinking of humans as sort of the standard to aspire to is to be as rational as possible. That sort of that model seems to have dominated in kind of say the world of business and uh, economics and perhaps even psychology. Is that is that kind of an accurate description of what's happened in recent times? So what happened more recently in the 20th century was a certain deviation from this debate, uh, because there was this debate even during the Enlightenment period, even post-Enlightenment period, because there was Enlightenment and counter-Enlightenment uh, and sort of this kind of romanticism ideas. The romantics tried to get back to some kind of moral, sentimental mm-hmm. understanding of various Enlightenment focus more on this kind of reasoning, abstract thinking. Mm-hmm. And in the 20th century, Uh, we had uh, a deviation from this debate where we started to focus more on the former, on the abstract thinking, and less on this kind of the civic. And it happened to some extent, I would say, as a consequence of the world wars and people's reactions to the Cold War that started to emerge in the 50s. So what happened was uh, in the first part of the 20th century, the ideas in economics and in public policy over fairly sort of, well, I would say all over the place, but they started to crystallize 
uh, in part because uh, Keynesian economics, which was prominent in the first part of the 20th century, uh, started to decline in prominence and in its mm-hmm. uh, people didn't really appreciate its value in politics uh, as much anymore. And instead of that, this other idea of neoliberal focus on rational agent started to emerge. And this idea that sort of started to emerge throughout the 20th century, but became really prominent in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Since that idea emerged, everything about reasonableness really took a backseat. And instead of that, we have this idea of hyper-rationality uh, that goes in a direction that focuses on one abstract rule, and this rule is self-interest and your own preferences, and everything else is secondary to that. So if you just if you can figure out what your personal preferences are, mm. then you can figure out what will be driving humans' behavior. So this, for me, this is where it gets the most interesting, and this is what I really liked about this this whole piece. In that sort of histo- history you gave, uh, we kind of got to the sort of 70s, 70s, 80s kind of period. Um, mm-hmm. And then this idea of behavioral economics suggesting that humans are not able to behave in rational ways that's sort of that's one of the sort of foundational principles of behavioral economics it's like yes we we've always had these models assuming humans behave in rational ways but actually they they don't okay and the assumption i think that the it's always been implied that they they would like to but they can't but maybe that's not what's going on perhaps and maybe they're choosing to not do that and perhaps be reasonable rather than rational so that that's a huge idea if that's if that turns out to be the case um so it seems like the thrust of what one of the things you were looking at in this paper is trying to dig into that a little bit and work out is that what's going on right so to some extent what we are trying to do is figure out whether the claims uh, by a behavioral economist who in turn reacted to this idea. So, you know, like uh, neoliberal uh, economists and politicians were emphasizing the standard of rationality as a, as a preference maximizing mm. robot, if you want. And, and then behavioral economists and social psychologists came in and said, ha ha, but look, people are actually irrational. In most of the situations, they do not do what your right. economic models predict. So they can't even help it. They just like they're just subject to heuristics and biases yeah. and God knows what. And the interpretation there is that the most common interpretation is that people just can't do it. And yeah. uh, the reason, so if they can't do it, then the only thing you can do about it is uh, somehow change the environment so that uh, they can habitually, just as, as a default, do the right thing. So right. you change, you know, uh, on, on your driving license, the organ donation. Right. Uh, for choice like architecture. Of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the choice architecture mm-hmm. that uh, scholars in economics and social psychology emphasize through this kind of nudges. I will nudge you towards the right decision. Mm-hmm by making it easier for you to choose the right thing according to, you know, what the rational model sure. would suggest. Yeah. But that may be only half of the story. Mm-hmm. And so if they, if, they, if, if they can actually understand rationality, but they're not using it for some other reasons, yeah. then you would have uh, a very different uh, path to make people rational, potentially, yeah. if you want in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that, that for me is uh, a big deal. Because I've always just sort of taken it as gospel. People would want to be rational. So if they're not behaving rationally, they can't be rational. But this idea that, in fact, they might be, they perhaps they can be rational, but they're choosing a different standard. That's, that's, 
that's pretty uh, pretty exciting. Um, all right, so so on this paper, you you were trying to work out what is it that the public think uh, conceive of when they talk about uh, sound judgment? Are they more along the sort of uh, rational idea, or do they think more of the reasonable uh, line? Um, so how how do you go about trying to dig into that? Well, it's a complex question, so I have to use complex methods. Uh, but yeah. uh, essentially, you can ask people, uh, you can measure their behavior, mm-hmm. and you can measure uh, the products that people create and evaluate systematically uh, what do uh, the terms rational, reasonable mean in, let's say, books or when people uh, use those terms in uh, uh, conversations on TV, when, mm-hmm. for instance, you look at soap operas or in uh, even Supreme Court opinions so in formal language, uh, when people talk about rational uh, versus reasonable, in what context do those terms appear? Uh, but uh, yeah, you can start with looking at, for instance, how people evaluate uh, rational and reasonable Individuals. So, uh, what kind of attributes, sure. what kind of characteristics yeah. do would you assign to somebody who's rational versus reasonable? And so, we found, for instance, that uh, rational people are viewed as more selfish, relatively speaking, okay, uh, than reasonable people. Uh, rational people are viewed as more uh, sort of maximizing their preference. They would uh, go through all sorts of options and pick the best. Uh, uh, they would not be satisfied until they pick the best. Okay, like oh, a maximizer, the, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's sure. a perfect maxima, preference maximizer, exactly okay. as sort yeah. of this idea uh, goes. And uh, the reasonable people, they would be satisfizers. Uh, what that means is that they would also go through options, but only continue until the acceptable, yeah. not potentially the best, but acceptable solution. Some sort of threshold level, yeah. That's yeah. definitely me. I'm definitely like, that is a good enough solution. Yeah, I mean, that's seems to seems to tell us that the public have quite distinct ideas about those two words so they they don't consider them the same thing but it doesn't tell us what they consider a sound judgment it's just saying we, we they sort of get that there's two different models but does it tell us what they by default prefer to use you could also look at the behavior right so you could look at how do people uh, react in critical situations in which, for instance, their self-interest is pitted against the uh, civic norm. Mm -hmm. And that's where you would possibly see this conflict between the rational preference maximization and the reasonable uh, sensitivity to social norms, so for instance, normal fairness. And when you do that and you ask people, what would be the reasonable versus rational expectation or what would they do if they were reasonable versus rational? Uh, you see very different uh, patterns of results. So it turns out that when you ask people to be rational, uh, they are much more likely to follow this economic notion of preference maximization in the diagnostic uh, economic games. So yeah. like a dictator game where economists would say it's always better not to cooperate with others. Uh, in anonymous situations or commons dilemma, same thing. Mm-hmm. You should not be investing into the common pool or even this uh, non-game game, non-game because it's not really an economic game. It's really just a demonstration called the dictator game uh-huh. where you're given, let's say, 10 bucks and you say, okay, look, you, are, you can assign how much of this 10 bucks another anonymous player whom you will never see can receive. He's also here for the study. You can give him this money or you can just keep it all for yourself. And the economist <laughs> would say, just keep it all for yourself. You don't know who this person is yeah. and you will never see them. There's no cost for you whatsoever. And yet people tend to give up to a third or even more. And okay. uh, so when we did this, for instance, with a rational agent, then uh, they are more likely 
to take most of the money for themselves. How do you make them a rational agent? Do you, do you prompt them and say, what would a rational agent do? Is that? Uh, yeah, well, like okay. we did like step by step. So first, like what would a rational person do? So the general expectation. Okay. So next, what would you do if you were to be rational? Okay. So to, ah. please try to be rational. And then the, the pushed it further by saying, okay, so think last time when you were rational uh-huh. uh, and now play a dictator game, so uh-huh. a classic dictator game and so how much money would you contribute? Okay. And so like the pattern was fairly systematic across those different options. Of course, a bit weaker for the last one than the former one. Mm-hmm. For the expectations, you really see a clear contrast between rational and the reasonable. Rational, uh, more likely not to give anything. Reasonable, more likely to give up to a half. Wow. But again, that tells us that people know what rational behavior looks like and they know what reasonable behavior looks like. But did you say that when you don't give them any sort of prompts, they tend to be more reasonable than rational? Like without any prompts, what sort of... Yeah, so when you do that, when you play a classic game without any prompts, people are exactly in between. Uh, So this is beautiful. So like people oscillate. Some of them are more rational, others are more reasonable in the sense that some of them don't give anything, uh, understand this, follow this economic principle of rationality, and others are following the civic norm, you know, like the the two of us, me and this other person, and I've been assigned to be the dictator here to assign the money, hence the dictator game. Mm -hmm. But I will still share with this person because, you know, just by chance I was assigned. So principle of fairness dictates that we should be sharing, right? Mm. It's like economists would say, no, it does not. But the, the, you know, the moral philosophers would say, yes. So, yeah, I mean, fairness seems to be a big part of it. Yeah, reason, well, I was going to say reason, but I'm confused whether reason refers to rational or reasonable now, so I won't use the word reason. But um, the rational agent doesn't sort of take any consideration of fairness into account, seems to be. Well, it doesn't have to. I mean, it can. A rational agent can be fair when it benefits them, in the sense, for instance, uh, that either there will be some benefits for them to be fair in the long run. For instance, if the game is not anonymous and you play against somebody whom you would know or who would know that you acted the particular way, then it's in your interest to be viewed as a fair person. So you would have this kind of reputational gains Mm -hmm. from that. Or maybe uh, another solution here is uh, to act fair because your preference is to be a fair person. And so you view it through the lens uh-huh. of like, my interest is yeah. to be viewed as, uh, as fair and uh, as maybe I define myself as yeah. a very virtuous individual. And therefore, it is indeed in my preference uh, to be fair. So then but that, of it course, is like, rational you know, to be fair. It does become rational. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it all sort of filters through your preferences. Mm. It's all about you. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you want? So where does that leave us in terms of this question about, um, the these assumptions in behavioral economics which is which is that well people would choose to be rational and if they're not uh that's because they can't be it it doesn't sound like we've established or it doesn't sound like with that work you've established in fact that people don't care about rationality at all all they want is reasonableness so that's the reason that they're not being rational because it sounds like in that sort of dictator game they're somewhere in between so it it doesn't completely pull the legs out from that uh, from underneath the behavioral economics assumption does it yeah so i think i think uh, behavioral economists should be fairly happy about it as should classic economists neoclassic economists who sort of subscribe to this uh, neoliberal ideas about what 
uh, rationality should be about. What our research shows is that uh, you can, under some circumstances, understand the concept of rationality, and maybe when whenever you understand it, you may just not choose to act rationally. So there, it's not about you yeah. not being able to act rationally. That could, of course, happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We are misers and we are subject to biases and heuristics and all those things. So sometimes we do need help. But other times we just, uh, we just don't want that. Uh, principle to be the one guiding us right so so that that's where the nudge question comes in i suppose like the nudging is is assuming that you would prefer to make the rational decision if you're only better at this um so we're going to help you by changing the environment but it's it seems if people are choosing to actually not be rational and be reasonable then changing the environment to lead them towards the rational choice is uh almost doesn't sound ethical (laughs) Yeah, it's really weird because, uh, for instance, uh, the way how uh, uh, Dick Tyler and uh, Kassenstein talk about it is uh, they they say like, well, nudge gives you a, a choice still because you know you can still choose to uh, go for this easy rational option or uh, this uh, hard or harder irrational thing, according to the economists. But that sounds like really weird, especially if people may not want, uh, uh, deliberately not want that uh, rational option. You said that it had implications for how politicians should communicate a policy when they're trying to sell it to the public. And there's this assumption that uh, everyone's got only their self-interest at heart you know so that's the kind of the rational maximizing pitch so we all we need to twist every policy into a way that people can see how it benefits them whereas if in fact people aren't driven by that politicians might want to rethink about how they present policies yeah so it's it's really interesting this observation of how politicians even on the left are really succumb to this neoliberal ideas about uh, what a sound decision should be about. And it's really about your preferences and your egoism to some extent. I mean, I'm exaggerating. But if you think about like Britain and the United States, the Democrats who traditionally were supposed to promote this kind of civic virtues, potentially uh, uh, fairness, equality and so on, right? And the Labour Party, uh, Mm. they frame a lot of messages, especially those who are mainstream in terms of this kind of neoliberal preference maximization, you know, uh, uh, fighting for climate change is good for you personally. Paying more taxes uh, is good for you. It's it's a really tortured argument it's quite tragic it's like, it's like finally sort of accepting defeat almost isn't it yeah yeah i mean i'm not sure if it's just defeat or it's just because you know it did become i mean like the, the uh neoliberal uh, agenda did become so mainstream so uh-huh. successful yeah. in um communicating uh, certainly in macro and microeconomics what our decision should be about, that anybody who has taken an economics course thinks about those terms. They think about personal preferences first and maybe ethics second. And ethics is also something that's really fuzzy and unclear, whereas this economic stuff can be uh, really broken down to simple equations, yeah, yeah. Uh, a utility maximization function. Yeah. So why not uh, choose that? It sounds much more science. Yeah, it's easier to measure. So let's, we can get on with that's it and right. get some real data. That's right. And so then you end up with this kind of oh, tortured arguments about how, you know, uh, uh, carbon taxation policy uh, uh, is good because uh, it will, you will get more money back. Yeah. 
<laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> That's uh, not the reason why you do carbon taxation policy. But, but then, but this paper is actually quite optimistic in that sense. It's saying that people, in fact, may not, may often not think in that way. In fact, so if you presented a policy as how it is uh, beneficial to the community or to a broad number of people, individuals might see that as a win. They might say, yes, that's what I'm motivated by. That's right. Uh, so we do say, well, first of all, with the, people do recognize rationality arguments. So mm. they don't land on deaf ears when politicians make them. So yeah, okay, maybe half a win. But maybe under some circumstances, instead of torturing and twisting your arguments, so it will become about pr- maximizing uh, constituents' preferences, uh, a more successful and appealing argument would be something along the lines of what uh, Kennedy used to make, as well as many other politicians mm. in the first part of the 20th century, appealing to civic virtues, mm. appealing to your know, sense of equality, justice, all those principles, uh, which is closer aligned to this idea of reasonableness. All right, Igor, because I'm asking most of the questions today, I know that if this was you asking the questions, you wouldn't let you go without me asking you, if you follow okay. it so far, does this stand up across cultures? Huh. It's the Igor uh, well, Grossman classic ex- question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to some extent, it seems uh, like it does. So we did, uh, I mean, uh, we did this work across cultures. We did this uh, across different languages. Some, a lar- large chunk of this work was focusing on texts and how people write about rational and reasonable okay. individuals. And the differentiation seems to appear both in English and in Spanish and in Portuguese and in Urdu in Pakistan and in a Russian. So that seems to generalize. We also did some of the experiments, including the dictator game okay. in Pakistan, including in rural Pakistan, right. where people right. don't even use money that much. I mean, they still use it, but uh, quite often they just exchange goods, you know, this cow, or this goat yeah, yeah, for this yeah. uh, amount of milk or butter yeah. or grades. And uh, still they differentiated between these notions of a reasonable rational. I mean, of course, we use the local equivalents of those terms. So it seems like it does uh, generalize. We This is not published yet. We also found something similar in China uh, where the differentiation holds in the in Mandarin and when you're playing the games in China. It would, um, it would seem like when what you're trying to do, specifically this uh, paper, is tease apart definitions which have a similar route like the process of translating those words into the local languages you'd have to be really careful about that wouldn't you absolutely i mean and you when you translate it into mandarin or into um, Urdu, uh, you would need to be careful that you pick yeah. uh, something that on the one hand economists are using classically, and that's yeah. easy. So the rational term is very easy because you would just look at the economic books sure. and as soon as they talk about you know, rational agent model uh, what There's is a word. Cla- yeah. classic translation. Yeah. But for reasonable you have to pick a term that is linked to sound judgment and is linked to mm-hmm. civic virtues because that's how you know we understand it in the West. 
So, yeah, but I mean, you know, you can do that and you work with uh, uh, bicultural translators who understand multiple languages, including your language, and you do on back and forth, uh, like one group of people translated into one language and then another group of people translates it back. Oh, and okay. uh, at some point you will try to figure it out. Uh, this is a traditional way how cross-cultural research is done. It doesn't really eliminate the possibility that there may have been some translation bias. Yeah. And that's why it's best to work in a group of multiple people, uh-huh. not just two individuals. Yeah. Right, so you don't just use Google Translate then? You, so, you know, like for some languages you could, <laughs> uh, for uh, because, uh, for instance, the rational and reasonable in uh, Spanish or in Portuguese, the, the terms are so close in terms of the roots to uh, right. how they're used in English, yeah. or at least the rational one, uh, that it's fairly easy to use the Google Translate because Google Translate also is not... Uh, just a dumb translator. It's actually a fairly sophisticated uh, machine learning algorithm based on tons of uh, data and with human feedback input. So it's um, actually, it can be useful in that case. So it's quite powerful. It can really. be yeah, useful yeah. for some, yeah, for yeah. some of the simpler things it yeah. can be useful. But yeah, when you go into languages that uh, go beyond the scope of sort of like Indo-Germanic, it becomes complicated. All right. Well, Igor, I think we'd better wrap it up. Uh, where, when is this paper going to be out? Where can people find it? So the paper is out as of uh, last Wednesday. Yeah, so and they can find it on uh, Science uh, Magazine website, on Science Advances section, uh, which is the open access section of the Science Magazine. All right. I'm looking forward to uh, see it cause a big splash. So keep us updated. Will do. All right. Listeners, thank you very much. Tune in again, same time next week. We have an exciting guest next time, but we can't reveal it as of yet. So, goodbye, Eagle. Bye-bye. And now for a quick summary of today's episode. First, we spoke about how what constitutes sound judgment has changed throughout history. We spoke about Isaiah Berlin's idea of hedgehogs, who believe the world can be approached and understood through the lens of one big abstract idea, and foxes, who tend to adopt different tools in different contexts. While the Enlightenment saw a distinction between rationality and reasonableness crystallise, the 20th century saw the dominance of the rationality model, favoured by neoliberal ideas in economics. Nonetheless, the idea of the reasonable person persisted in the field of law as the man on the Clapham omnibus. We framed rationality as abstract preference maximisation and reasonableness as balancing preferences with socially conscious norms. We then spoke about how the general population views sound judgment. New research suggests that people do have quite distinct ideas about rational versus reasonable behaviour, and can even adopt either behaviour when prompted in various lab-based games. While behavioural economists suggest that people are often incapable of rational behaviour, this research suggests an alternative explanation for irrational behaviour. People may be aspiring to the standard of reasonableness rather than rationality. If this is the case, the strategy of nudges, where people's environment is changed to nudge them towards rational choices, might be falling short. Finally, we spoke about how politicians often bend themselves over backwards to present their policies in a way that highlights the benefit to the individual. However, if people frequently aspire to standards of reasonableness rather than rationality, perhaps highlighting the positive social impacts of policies may appeal to a large section of the electorate. That's it for this episode. Until next time on the On Wisdom Podcast.